0: Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2? There was a commercial back in the early 80s where a man is in a crowded public place and he leans over to the fellow next to him and says, My broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, And at that moment, the entire place stops talking, stops moving they turn their undivided attention to the words that are about to be uttered. And another voice breaks the silence with, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Well, I hope you weren't listening to E.F. Hutton because shortly after that became a household phrase, their president entered a guilty plea to 2,000 counts of federal mail fraud and money laundering and the corporation was dismantled. Kind of makes you wonder who you should be listening to, doesn't it? Well, the ultimate answer is found in Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 says, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And what have we heard? Well, he tells us in chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 that God is speaking to us in His Son, And the writer is saying, when Jesus is speaking, you had better drop everything and lean forward and give Him your full attention. And this exhortation comes with a warning. E.F. Hutton could have said, if you don't listen to me, your financial future is at stake. Well, the writer says, if you don't listen to Jesus, your eternal future is at stake. This passage forms the first of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We will find these warning passages interspersed throughout the book. And it's as if the writer can only teach for so long. And then he has to confront his readers with their reaction. In fact, I like the fact he only gets through 14 verses And now He's impassioned and He's calling for a response. And that's why at the end of this book in chapter 13 and verse 22, He calls it a word of exhortation because it demands a response. The Word of God always demands a response. You see, it's not enough to simply hear the message. You have to react to the message. And that's why an effective teacher doesn't simply deposit facts. He has to warn and exhort and extend an invitation. You see, a teacher of God's Word who crosses every T and dots every I when it comes to truth and doctrine, but doesn't have a passion for the reaction of his listeners is not worth a nickel. Because you see, the reality is you can know all the truth there is to know about Jesus Christ and still go to hell if you never entrust your life to Him. Now, who is this warning directed to? Well, it's, war- it's, it's directed to the same people that every one of these five warning passages is directed to. It's directed to the Hebrew person in the first century who is intellectually convinced about the gospel. In fact, he's so convinced he has left Judaism. He has become associated with the church, but he has never really made that commitment of faith to Jesus Christ. He is standing at the doorway of salvation. And he's starting to be distracted by other things. He's starting to count the cost and he's looking back toward Judaism and he's saying, you know, it would be a lot easier if I just go back. If I just drift back to my old religion, I'll have a much more comfortable life. And so the writer exhorts him to pay attention, to not neglect salvation. Now this warning is not, as some say, a warning to Christians because we are not in danger of neglecting salvation. We have already accepted salvation. We have received it. We have embraced it. We might neglect growth. We might neglect discipleship. We might even, as the Bible says, leave our first love. But we can never neglect salvation. You see, this warning is directed to those who say, I know it's true, But I'm not ready to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. We all know people like that, don't we? I remember when I was in college, I worked in Washington, D.C. for a tree company there. And and I would go out on jobs and uh, there was a fellow who worked there, a blonde haired guy. He was like the drug dealer at work. And I would be sharing the Gospel with other guys as we were working, spreading mulch or whatever else. And it was funny because this guy would inevitably speak up and he'd say, what he's saying is true. I know it's true. My grandparents were missionaries to Africa. And the Bible is absolutely true. He was helping me witness. So afterwards I would go to him and I'd say, have you ever committed your life to Jesus Christ? And he would say, No, it's too much to give up. Well, that's a bad bargain. Because what he kept was not anywhere even worthy of what he could have had in Jesus Christ. And I think there are people here this morning who are a lot like that. You've heard the truth, you know the truth. You could probably tell another person how to come to faith in Jesus Christ, but you are unwilling to make that step of faith. You're unwilling to make that commitment to Jesus Christ. Well, if that describes you, this passage is aimed right at you. You say, well, why does He use the personal pronouns we and us? Well, I think this is what you see in the Bible. It's it's the we of association. James does the same thing in James 3.9. Speaking of the tongue, he says, with it we bless our Lord and with it we curse men. And that ought not to be. Here the writer says in chapter 1 verse 2, God has spoken to us in His Son. And now he says, because God has spoken to us, we had better listen. And that's really the exhortation in a nutshell. Pay much closer attention. Listen up. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Luke 9.44. Let these words sink into your ears. Now when we look at this, it's not really so much an invitation as it is an exhortation. He is not asking us. He is telling us. He's not saying, you know, it would be really nice if you would listen up. He uses the word, we must. It's mandatory. And to show us that it's mandatory, that we pay attention to, that we respond to Jesus Christ, the writer gives us three reasons why we must listen up. I've listed them in your bulletin. The first is, we have no option in verse 1. Notice verse 1 again. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For this reason. For what reason? Well, the reason that He's laid out for us in chapter 1. God is no longer just speaking to us through prophets in fragmentary revelation. He is speaking to us in the fullest, most profound way possible. He is speaking to us in His Son. Now, let me interject something here. I I took exception last week with John MacArthur, who says in his commentary on Hebrews that the name Son was just a temporary and inferior name that Christ took on during his days on earth. Now, I normally don't name names. Uh, I I normally don't, don't name names when I disagree with people because I disagree with a lot of people. But, but John MacArthur made the point in his commentary that people who didn't agree with him were involved in heresy, so I felt I needed to confront that. I'm pleased to report, as several of you have informed me this week, that John MacArthur has changed his position on this. I was unaware of that last week. So in fairness, let me just quote a few lines from his retraction. I want to state publicly that I have abandoned the doctrine of incarnational sonship. Careful study and reflection have brought me to understand that Scripture does indeed present the relationship between God the Father and Christ the Son as an eternal father-son relationship. I no longer regard Christ's sonship as a role He assumed in His incarnation. Now, I think there's a lesson in that. Every teacher is fallible. I hope you understand that. I hope you're like the Bereans. It says of the Bereans in Acts 17, they received what Paul said with eagerness and then they examined the Scriptures to see if these things were so. I hope you don't go around saying, thus says John MacArthur. Thus says Charles Stanley. You listen to a teacher and you evaluate what he says by the Word of God. The Bible tells us here that Son is a more excellent name. God has spoken to us in His Son, the One who is the heir of all things, the One who made the world, the brightness of the glory of God, the exact image of His person, the One who upholds all things by the Word of His power, the One who cleansed our sins, the one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the one who is greater than angels because he has a greater name, son of God, because he has a greater status, angels worship him, because he has a greater position, king of the universe, because he has a greater nature, he is Jehovah God, and because he has a greater destiny, he is sovereign over all and the writer says for this reason we need to pay much closer attention to what we have heard I can honestly tell you that I don't understand how people can know who Christ is and yet never commit their lives to him when you do that there is no other option you see God can't make it Any clearer. God can't speak any louder. God is speaking in these last days through His only Son. I hope it can't be said of you when God speaks, you're doodling. Because what a tragedy that is. Now, the writer chooses two words in verse one that are nautical words. The first is the Greek word prosecco, which is translated to pay attention to, but it was used of the idea of mooring a ship, tying down a boat, anchoring a boat to the shore. And then the second Greek word is pararoming, which I can't say, which is translated drift away. And it was used of a ship drifting by the harbor. Now that's a vivid picture. I used to do a lot of whitewater canoeing, and if you're not paying attention on a river, you can find yourself drifting into great danger. Well, the writer of Hebrews is using this kind of analogy to say, because of who Christ is, we ought to anchor our lives to what we have heard, lest the ship of life drifts past the harbor of salvation And we are lost forever. You see, people don't go diving headlong into hell, they just drift into it. You have to wonder how many thousands of people are in hell today who were so close to salvation and they just drifted by. It's so quiet. It's so easy, and yet it's so damning. You know, all you have to do to go to hell is do nothing. And if you drift by the harbor of salvation, there is no other harbor. You're not going to come back in another life and get another try. God has spoken to you in His Son. And if you are not listening, there is no other option. Second reason why it's mandatory, we have no escape. You know, there are some questions that seem to have no answer. I have a lot of them. Why do we park on driveways and drive on parkways? There's some questions that don't have answers. If those black boxes that contain flight recorders are indestructible, then why don't they make the plane out of that stuff? And how do they make Teflon stick to pans when nothing sticks to Teflon? Some questions have no answers. Well, in this passage, the writer asks a question that has no answer. Only it's not very funny. Look at at verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect so great A salvation. Now what is the word spoken through angels? Well, that's the Old Testament law. And he says it is unalterable, steadfast, firm. When you broke it, it broke you. And his point is, if you couldn't get away with breaking the old covenant brought by angels, how do you expect to get away with neglecting the new covenant brought by Jesus Christ? Christ there's no answer to that question because there is no escape judgment is certain you say well Dan back up a minute I didn't know that angels brought the law well that's that's a a, a truth that you really don't get necessarily by reading the Old Testament you get hints of it from the Old Testament for instance Psalm 68:17 says the chariots of God are myriads thousands upon thousands the Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place that tells us that angels were there on Sinai when the law was given in Deuteronomy 33:20 Moses says the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones, angels. At his right hand there was a fiery law. And so, again, you have the angels there when the law was given. But that's pretty sketchy information. But what I find interesting is when you come to the New Testament, you find out that first century Jews understood that angels delivered the law. In fact, to show you that, look at Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives such a good sermon that it was his last sermon. Acts chapter 7, in verse 38, speaking of Moses, he says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles, that's the law, to pass on to you. Moses was speaking with an angel on Mount Sinai. And then if you move over a few verses to verse 53, it says, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And Paul reinforces this in Galatians 3.19 where he says, "...the law was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator." So we find out in the New Testament that that angels actually delivered the law. God wrote it, but angels delivered the law to Moses. You see, that's why the writer spends so much time in chapter 1 showing that Jesus Christ is greater than the angels because he wants to make the contrast between those two messages. The message from the angels, which is the Old Testament law, and the message from Jesus Christ, which is the new covenant that we enjoy today. And so he tells us in verse 2, The words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just Recompense. Now those two words, transgression and disobedience, are interesting words. The word transgression means to step across a line. It's when a person understood the law but acted in defiance of it. It is the sin of commission. And then the second word, disobedience, means literally imperfect hearing. It's when a person chose to close his ears to what he knows to do. And so it is the sin of, Omission. So you have the sin of commission, the sin of omission, and those two words cover it all because there are only two kinds of sin. There is what you do that you shouldn't and what you don't that you should. And he says either kind of sin receives a just recompense. And that word recompense means literally to receive your wages. In other words, you get what you earn. Whether you sinned blatantly or whether you tried to cover it up by your ignorance, the law gave you what you deserved. In Leviticus 24, when a person cursed God, he was stoned to death. In Numbers 15, a man picked up sticks on the Sabbath day and he was stoned to death. In Deuteronomy 17, when anyone worshipped and served other gods... They were stoned to death. In Numbers 25, Israel worshipped Moab's god, Baal, and God sent a plague killing 24,000 Israelites. And the writer's point is this. Since judgment was certain under the Old Covenant for those who disregarded it, how do you expect to escape from God's judgment if you disregard the New Covenant? To to disregard Regard the message of angels brought severe judgment. So what is it going to mean to disregard the word spoken by Jesus Christ? And the message of the Gospel is a wonderful message. In fact, here it's called So Great a Salvation... But I think sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that because God's message today is a message of grace, and because people are not being stoned to death for adultery, they're not being struck dead for idolatry, that God isn't taking sin as seriously. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a great message but the flip side is true as well. For those who are not in Christ, there is condemnation. In fact, the writer of Hebrews is warning us that to neglect a greater message brings a greater judgment. You know why God's judgment on Israel was so severe? It's because they knew better. They had heard the message which underlines a principle that we find in Scripture, and that is that punishment is always based on light. The more light you have received, the more punishment you get. The more information you have, the more accountable you are. Jesus said to the people in Capernaum in Matthew eleven twenty four, 24, It shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What a statement. Jesus is saying that there will be greater judgment for the unbeliever who was a fine upstanding citizen in Capernaum than for the pervert in Sodom. Why is that? Because those in Capernaum had more light. Jesus lived there. Jesus did His miracles there. Jesus preached there. And they still said, no thanks. In Mark 12, 38, Jesus says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They are the ones who devour widows' houses and for appearance' sake offer long prayers. These shall receive greater condemnation. The religious leader who rejects Jesus Christ receives greater judgment. See, going to seminary, wearing a robe, wearing a collar, isn't something that's going to bring you closer to God. If you reject Jesus Christ, those things will actually bring you greater condemnation because you should know better in luke 12:47 jesus says and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging shall receive but few and from everyone who has been given much shall much be required Punishment is prorated on the basis of how much you know. And that explains why later in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says this in verse 28, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Now let me ask you a question. Where does that put you this morning? Maybe you're sitting here and you know all about Jesus, but you've never made a commitment of faith to Him. If you don't, Your judgment will be great because you have had much light. Now, I'm not going to apologize if I'm scaring you because I would rather scare you now than pity you later. Because there is a question for which we have no answer. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There is no escape. And then the third reason why we must pay attention is that we have no excuse. Look at the middle of verse 3. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own. Will. Now the key word there is the word confirmed in verse 3. God has not only spoken His word, He has confirmed His word. And that confirmation is threefold. First of all, it's confirmed by the word of the Lord. Verse 3 says, After it was at the first spoken through the Lord. The Lord Jesus, who is called the Word, communicated the message of the Gospel, both in His own words and in His own actions. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, and verse 18, quoting from Isaiah 61, He says, He has anointed me to preach the Gospel. And so that's where it began with the message of Christ. And then the second confirmation is not only the Word of the Lord, but the witness of the apostles. Notice the end of verse 3. And it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Now those who heard Jesus were the apostles. And after Jesus rose, they were sent out and they went out and they said, here's what we heard, here's what we saw. In fact, we find that one of the qualifications for an apostle, according to Acts 1.22, is that he had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. He had to go out and be able to say, I have seen the risen Christ. That's confirmation. So it it starts with the Word of the Lord. It moves to the witness of the apostles. And then the third confirmation is the works of the Spirit. Verse 4, God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. God confirmed the message by signs. That word means proofs or marks. By wonders. Wonders were something that caused people to look on and go, wow, that's amazing. Miracles mean supernatural acts. And gifts, of course, are the distributions of the Holy Spirit. And because he's talking here about gifts that confirm, I think he's really talking specifically about the sign gifts. If you go through the lists of the gifts in Scripture, you find that certain gifts were sign gifts. Those gifts would be the gift of healings, of miracles, of tongues, of interpretation of tongues. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14.22 says tongues are for a sign. Those were gifts that were given to confirm the message. Now when we think about it, Jesus' message was confirmed by His miracles. He went out and taught. He also healed, cast out demons, raised the dead. Ultimately, He Himself was raised from the dead. And in John 14, 11, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Nicodemus said in John 3, 2 to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And in Acts 2.22, in Peter's message, he says, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. And those same things that Peter said accompanied Jesus are said here in Hebrews 2.4 to be done by those who heard Him. Now in the first century, when somebody came with a message from God and said, I'm an apostle... How did you confirm that he was an apostle? Well, you confirmed it by God doing signs and wonders and miracles and supernatural gifts. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Acts 14.3 tells us that Paul and Barnabas came to Iconium And it says, Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, doing miracles. The apostles came... Preaching the message of the gospel confirmed by miracles. But I want you to notice something in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4. I want you to notice who does these signs. It's not the readers of this book that are doing the signs, it is the apostles and the prophets who heard the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 says, The church was built upon the foundation of of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets went out speaking the gospel, spreading the gospel as Jesus told them to do. Their word was confirmed by signs and wonders and miracles. They laid the foundation for the church. How many times do you have to lay a foundation? One time. They laid the foundation for the church. Today, there are no apostles. That was a foundational gift If somebody comes to you today and says, I'm an apostle, then you need to ask them to do the signs of an apostle. Uh, Would you mind healing a blind person or raising a dead person just to confirm that you have the signs of an apostle? Because that's what the Bible says. If you're an apostle, you're going to have the signs of an apostle. You see, I am convinced that God doesn't need to confirm His Word through signs and wonders today. And the reason is because the Word of God Is complete. It is established. Today, if someone comes and says, I am sent from the Lord with a message for you, how do you confirm that? You go to the Word of God and see if what He's saying is true. That's why when John MacArthur said what he did, I went to the Word and said, that doesn't line up with the Word. That's the way you confirm a messenger of God today. In fact, John wrote this at the close of his Gospel in John 20, verse 30 and 31. He said... Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. You see, we don't need miracles to confirm the Word today. We have the Word to confirm the miracles. And the Word is all we need in terms of confirmation in order to believe. And if you do not believe on the basis of God's Word, then you have no excuse. I want to be honest with you. The the word that bothers me most in this passage is that word in verse 3, neglect. Because neglect is such a subtle thing. It's such a quiet thing. In fact, that Greek word is only used two other places in the New Testament. Jesus uses it this way in Matthew 22. He tells a parable about a king who's having a wedding feast for his son. And when the dinner is prepared and everything is ready, He sends His servants to tell the invited guests to come. Jesus says, but they paid no attention and went their way, one to His own farm, another to His business. That's neglect. Let me ask you this morning, what is it that's distracting you. Where are you going in such a hurry that you are not paying attention to Jesus? I'd love to do a commercial that says, when Jesus speaks, E.F. Hutton listens. But see, that's not really the issue for you this morning. The issue is when Jesus speaks... Are you listening? Are you responding in faith? Have you committed your life to Him? Because if you haven't, you have no option, you have no escape, and you have no excuse. Let me tell you something. The majority of people in hell today never openly rejected Jesus Christ. They never openly denied Jesus Christ. They just drifted by. They just neglected Him. They just didn't pay attention. They just ignored Him. They just put Him off. They just said, some other day. They just said, someday. And someday never came. If you're sitting here this morning and you're still neglecting, you're still drifting. Why not anchor yourself to Jesus Christ today? Why not receive Him, trust Him, accept Him so that you can experience the great salvation that He's offering you? I'm going to have the praise team come back and we're going to close with an invitation for you, if you've never done so, to surrender your life to Jesus Christ today. If you'd like to come forward and talk more about it, you can do that. You can do this right where you sit because the words to this song are going to say, I will bow down and hail you as King. I will serve you, give you everything. I will lift up my eyes to your throne and I will trust you. I will trust you alone.